0: This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Paglia in Stockholm, Sweden. I'm the host of the Polar Geopolitics podcast, which is available on all podcast platforms. And here on episode 55, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Ian Bremmer. He's the president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Ian, thanks very much for joining us here on the podcast. Happy to join you. I was very excited when I saw that uh, you did a report from uh, Antarctica, which you were uh, over uh, New Year. Perhaps you can start by um, giving us an idea why you actually made the journey down to Antarctica. I might call it an expedition of sorts, and uh, what your impressions were.
1: Well, I mean, uh, my life has been focused on international affairs um and i travel all over the world uh you know different countries different cultures probably 100 different countries over time um and uh, i've never been it's a whole continent it's huge um and uh, i i have never been there um a, a few years ago maybe i think it was three years ago um i met with uh uh was was hannah uh mckean and who uh was the chief scientist for the uh u.s base on the south pole and she's a you know incredible expeditionist and i i found her first of all her passion uh, about about the place and about the community and how everyone there is doing their damnedest to keep it intact really inspiring it made me want to see, you know, sort of what it was all about uh, and also want to experience it, especially I mean, as we're getting more and more news about uh, the inevitability of a lot of global warming uh, and we see a lot of glacial melt and we saw most recently uh, a lot of emperor penguins uh, drown before they could develop their, you know, sort of their their teenage fur uh, and be able to survive in the water. Um, you know th- those kinds of things make you want to make you want to see it, experience it, so you can share, so you can. I mean, so it can be a part of my life, and so it can be something I talk about and engage with. So, I mean, look, I'm not a thrill seeker at all. Uh, I mean, I remember when you had those crazy guys that went down to see the uh, the Titanic through a screen, and I was thinking these people are insane. Uh, I have no particular desire to go into space. I like the planet I'm on, but. I do feel like uh, this extraordinary thing, this little ball, this improbable gift that we've all been given that makes me an existential optimist about life um, is something I should learn as much about as I can. And for me, that's, you know, that's really about the geopolitics of the place. And there's not a lot of geopolitics in Antarctica. and 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 I'm thankful for that, frankly. But it did seem like an awful large piece of the planet that at some point I was just going to need to get down there and, you know, spending a week Christmas and New Year's, I mean, it meant, you know, no Christmas with the family and all of that. So, I mean, it was a, it, it did require some, uh, some groveling, uh, but it, uh, you know, the the reality is it wasn't uh it wasn't all that hard uh, to get down there. And so I was really delighted. I did it.
0: And science is a theme that uh, I'd like to return to a little bit later on in this uh, discussion. This absence of geopolitics there—that's perhaps something we'll problematize in the course of this discussion—and yeah. get some insights into what you what you mean by that. Um, of course, it's been a, quite a success story this past sixty years. Yeah. The Arctic Treaty System has maybe kept geopolitics at bay for this time, uh, at least on the maybe on the superficial level. But the report—you you gave a report for G Zero Media, and it was quite optimistic. But I'm wondering—I mean, just from your wide knowledge on geopolitics uh, in general. Do you see this idea of Antarctic exceptionalism, this, this success story of keeping geopolitics at bay, to keeping it sort of immune from the major tensions in other parts of the world, do you see that as sustainable, given all the problems? I mean, you have your Eurasia Group risk report of 2024 is quite, uh, quite grim. How long can Antarctica keep geopolitics outside of the uh, the continent?
1: Well, Look, first of all, I mean, as you know much better than I, uh, we have this governing treaty, which is fairly thin, but nonetheless has stood up over the decades and is not, uh, there's no need um, to uh, renew it until 2048. So we've got 25 years, which is a very long time in today's geopolitical environment when our existing status should stand up. Now, you can argue, and a lot of people do, and I saw the recent RAND study that was pretty good that did all of the kind of red teaming about what the Chinese might do and what the Russians might do and how you might see positioning around territorial claims and resource exploitation and use for you know, sort of satellites and uh, experiments and all these things that could have national security impact. I get it. And that's what their job is. And I'm glad they're doing that work. Um, But I want to take a more upbeat view. Uh, You know, it's taken us a long time to figure out that climate change is real. Uh, It's taken us a long time to stop people from lying to us about it and prevent us from taking action. And there's a lot of damage that's going to be done as a consequence of that. But we now see provable sustainable energy at scale, cheaper than fossil fuels. And, um, you know, again, you got to build that out and you need the infrastructure around it and you've got to make sure it works in all the different sectors. It can't just be about electricity. It has to be, you know, sort of about the entire grid. Um, and but, but by 2048, not only are we going to have a lot of really angry young people uh, because, you, you know, they, you didn't actually take care of this Uh, before they have to pay for it. But by 2048, I would bet a lot of money that the world will be primarily powered by sustainable post-carbon energy, cheap, decentralized, post-sustainable energy. And yeah, 2 degrees, 2.5 degrees warming from here to there, and lots of die-off of species, and lots of forced migration. But the long-term future, for the first time ever, will be uh, industrialized humans able to live in harmony with the planet. Now, that, for me, comes at a very good time for Antarctica, because this will be an incredible, a unique, unspoiled part Of the world um, that will still be stewarded by the planet collectively to avoid military confrontation and to avoid short term exploitation for wealth and gains at the expense of future generations. And yeah, I I think that uh, when I I think the kids are all right, uh, and I think the new tech is pretty, pretty important. And so when I look longer term, uh, I think that the kind of people that are likely to be in charge in another 20 or 30 years are people that are going to care a lot about making sure that the Antarctica that I experienced is one that their kids will be able to experience. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that.
0: That's a pretty interesting perspective. So you're a, you're a long-term optimist then for Antarctica. Does that extend to the rest of the world as well? Do you think there's going to be a sort of a collective transformation of the international system that will... Enable Antarctica to, to remain off limits until twenty forty eight and perhaps beyond. Well,
1: I mean, look, I, I am. We are right now in a in a ge, what I call a geopolitical recession, a bust cycle, where the architecture and the institutions we have really don't relate very well to the changing balance of power, and that creates a lot of conflict. The second most powerful country in the world is um, authoritarian and state capitalist. The most powerful country in the world has a dysfunctional democracy um and a uh, badly regulated um, free market system um, you know uh, they don't trust each other that's a problem and we're we're racing ahead with new technologies which are not all that sustainable um the i mean ai is an incredible transformative revolution that will unlock massive human capital and will allow us to uh, improve our health, expand our life expectancies, uh, take people out of poverty. It will create. It will reduce waste. It will increase. Allow us to measure things which much more effectively real time, so we can respond and manage them effectively and create new inventions in every field. Uh, at the same time, these will be tools that can be used in disruptive ways by bad actors, and uh, what that means. Is that in the next ten to twenty years, I think that either we're going to have a far wealthier, more rich, and longer alive, um, uh, or uh, we're not going to be here for much longer. So I can't tell. Uh, I, I mean, I I think there's a good chance the Antarctic does fine and we don't. Um, you know, let's put it that way. But um, you know, I think that if I, when I look at the next twenty five years. Uh, I see an Antarctic that is extremely expensive to get to. There are no indigenous people. Um, the uh, If there is lots of natural wealth, it is unproven, uh, and it comes with no infrastructure to speak of. So I just think there are a hell of a lot of other places that are in trouble before we start talking about the Antarctic. My, you know i'm more concerned about fishing we could certainly say you know off the Antarctic, a much bigger problem um, and again um you know the emperor penguin population you know i mean if 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 they may not be able to handle um the the transformation of uh, of climate um but of course other than that um the, uh, the 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 wildlife you're talking about on the south pole is pretty small right i mean it's I mean I was there for a week. I saw a lot of ice, <laughs> fair amount of rock, a lot, a lot of ice, not a lot of animals, right? And uh, and that's that's the reality.
0: And I guess you spoke to a lot of scientists and maybe yeah. other US government officials. What what's the perspective? What perspective do they have on on the sort of the, uh, the the years ahead when it comes to the governance of Antarctica?
1: Oh I think they're hopeful. I mean, look, these are people that uh, you know are very focused on their own community, and I like that. They're experts they're not spending most of their time thinking about politics. They're spending most of their time thinking about how to conduct their experiments, how to conduct their science under very, very difficult conditions. And they're also very cooperative as a group. I mean, in that regard, it's kind of like the International Space Station. You know, you're meeting these people that are on these bases. And if something breaks down, and especially if it's in the winter and there ain't nobody to help them out, you know, you're going to go to whoever's around. It doesn't matter what country you're from. So, I mean, there is this, you know, shared sense of camaraderie um, and humanity and community that I really love. I mean, I I was um, uh, sanctioned by the Russians uh, about a year ago, uh, probably uh, because I write, um, you know, objectively about everything happening in the world. And I've been fairly critical about the lies and propaganda that come out of uh, the authoritarian state media in Russia. Uh, I I don't I don't uh, I mean, I still have plenty of friends in Russia, even some connected to the Kremlin that I talk to regularly. Um, But I can't go there anymore. I really shouldn't fly over, fly through their airspace, which saddens me. I speak the language. Um, I did my Ph.D. I spent a year on the ground in Russia, a year in Ukraine, time in Kazakhstan. Um, But um, when I was in Antarctica, you know, so I'm like, okay, hey, there's a Russian base. Let me go talk to those guys. And they didn't care. They didn't have internet. Uh, so, I mean, they were interested just in, I speak Russian. They were delighted to talk to me in Russian. They were really interested in the news and what's been going on recently, what's been happening in the Ukraine war, what's happening in the US elections. Like, are we really going to elect Trump? But that's what they wanted to know. But they they didn't, the fact that I was an American was of complete curiosity and interest to them. And there was no, you know, the Antarctic, Antarctica is not a place with, you know, you know, it's not a place with nationality. Uh, I mean, even when you go to the South Pole, and it's the, the you know the sign is in English because the Americans have the base there, but you know it, it might as well be a UN flag. It doesn't matter.
0: I mean, there's two there's two lenses that people use when looking at science in Antarctica and to a certain extent in the Arctic as well. You know, some some look at it as this idea of science diplomacy, where this this like you're describing here, this sort of trust building between different countries and and building up institutions that that uh, scientists and and the research, the national research institutes that they represent can can build trust and, and, and cooperation. But the other uh, lens, and, and I actually read an article that you had written about looking at certain dual-use technologies, using science as more as a pretense for spying or establishing some sort of uh, on-the-ground presence in the Antarctica to bolster perhaps future claims. Do you prefer to look at science in one way or the other?
1: Of course, science has dual-use ap- applications. And when I look at my day job and the U.S.-China relationship and, you know, the export controls on on chips and chip making and cloud computing and, uh, you know, advanced technologies, we're increasingly seeing a level of decoupling which erodes trust and makes it hard for Americans and Chinese to research together, engage together, share stories, share humanity. Um, and for reasons that I understand, but sometimes, you know, you go too far and, uh, that that also can can uh, hurt you in the long term, but you know what what I saw uh, in Antarctica, uh, even with the Americans, is uh, not enough funding. It's not a priority. Uh, I saw you know lots of bases in various states of disrepair. I saw you know sort of you know tr- doing everything you can to try to make your resources last more. This did not feel like an area where the scientists are like blazing ahead with, we've got to make these claims for the future. It's more like we've got to do the best we can with what we have mm-hmm. and hope that they don't forget about us. So, you know, uh, this is, for me, this is the, the historic challenge with science in the United States is it's underfunded. You know, that the Russians who used to, in the cold war day, uh, you know, they had some of the best science in the world. They spent a lot of time on it. They've now become a petrostate state with a lot of military capacity and and they, their scientific capabilities in that country have been completely eroded. So and then you look at Antarctica, which is again hard to do, which isn't anyone's a priority. I mean, I meet with we meet with the u s. administration all the time. Uh, I can tell you that in the last three years, I can't I don't think Jake Sullivan has brought up the Antarctic with me once. But we did talk about it when I told him a few weeks ago that I was heading there, and he was like, "Oh, wow, that's crazy." So you know, he's like, "Why are you going?" Um, but but it wasn't it wasn't like, "Oh, when you're there, please find this out for me." It's not it's not a priority, and you know, frankly, um, not being a priority for the people working on geopolitics is probably a useful thing.
0: Does the same apply for the Arctic as well? Do you, do you see a lack of attention to the Arctic from no, uh, government? The leaders? Same
1: does not apply because the Arctic is going away. Uh, and it has massive commercial need. I mean, let's first of all, keep in mind that the countries surrounding the Arctic are wealthy. It is easy for them to get there. And as you have no ice, you will have ports. Um, And so you can save money on global shipping by going through the Arctic. Uh, You see what's happening in the Red Sea right now? Uh, That is making this more important. See what's happening in the Panama Canal right now? That's climate change. Red Sea is geopolitical conflict. Polar? hey, you know, and you're going to see lots of resources, seabed resources, all that sort of thing. So I, I think that the polar environment in the North is very, very different geopolitically than Antarctica. Do
0: you get the sense that the United States is seeing it that way as well and putting the yeah. resources into to that sort yeah. of figure?
1: I mean, Canada is doing a lot um, The from a smaller, you know, they have a small base, but they've, they've been paying attention to it for a lot longer. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't necessarily say that what the US is doing is adequate. And I say that out of a lack of focus on the issue over the past year um, than, than because I feel strongly about it. Uh, but there's no question that I've had a lot of conversations about the polar environment with different countries, different perspectives over the last five years.
0: I mean, do you see, I mean, this this Antarctic uh, governance, if we call it a success story of the past 60 years, so under the Antarctic treaty system, do you see, I mean, perhaps this is a bit of an idealistic perspective, but do you see that that positive experience having any Way to spill over to create some sort of uh, example of um, positive governance that other countries could learn from and perhaps uh, use as a as a model to further the international system.
1: Well, that's why it show it showed that we can do it. Um, And remember, when we did do it, it was the first arms control agreement uh, ever made between the Americans and the Soviets. That that's what the Antarctic Treaty actually was. So that's exciting, and it was. Uh, certainly, I wouldn't say it was the principal thing that motivated me to travel, but it was the principal thing that motivated me to talk about it when I was there and when I came back uh, is the fact that, I mean, there is a geopolitical relevance uh, in showing the world that when we put our mind to it, um, we actually are capable of 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 collective engagement for the future. I mean, this was really, that's what we were doing. We, we, there wasn't any urgency to it at that moment. But I mean, also keep in mind, I mean, we have a history, um, not just of war fighting. We also have a history of wonder and, and curiosity and exploration and progress. And the people that went to the South Pole, you know, a lot of whom didn't make it, but they all were going there because humans, it was there and humans needed to figure it out. And that's an incredible driver. And once we figure it out, we don't need to destroy it. That's the nice thing. Uh, And as we start thinking about space, um, and I worry, you know, that the the two people that are spending the most time talking about Mars are like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, who are incredible entrepreneurs and businessmen, um, but they're horrible civic models for the country and the world. Um, and and I don't want uh, the the um, the solar system uh, to be governed uh, the way uh, they would run their companies. Uh, I I don't want I don't believe that capitalism should be the driver um, of of how we think about global governance. Um, and and Antarctica uh, it shows that it's not just about GDP. That human beings have lots of values and you know, how we govern things frequently reflects those values. And and so we, we need to show people that there are meaningful examples that aren't just about how much money I can make and how I can exert dominion over people that are less fortunate than I. Uh, and and I, I think the Antarctic is a really good example of that.
0: That's a good parallel. I mean, this idea of a global commons, which Uh, Antarctica is seen as uh, perhaps could be extended to uh, some sort of cosmic comments to uh, prevent the uh, Musks and Bezos's of uh, making claims.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's not going to happen in in near-Earth orbit, unfortunately. Uh, It's way too late for that. Uh, But when we start talking about the moon and talking about Mars, and we are not far away from that, you saw Japan just became the fifth country to land on the moon just a few days ago. Um, You know, I I think that uh, it is high time to have those conversations. And uh, the, the good scientists working on the Antarctic are probably the best spokespeople that we have among our eight plus billion um, to be talking from their experience about the way we want to think about governance off planet.
0: Okay, do you see any, any interface between your top global risks of 2024, which you've published uh, with the um, Eurasia Group and the polar regions or anywhere where they, where they intersect, climate change, any other ways?
1: Well, I mean, you know, again, critical minerals and the fact that as we move uh, into transition energy, new batteries and other demands uh, for manufacturing uh, and that supply chain are going to require a lot of resources that are found and will be found in the polar region in the north, that's going to lead to, I think, a lot of excitement, a lot of wealth generated. Greenland is already seeing this as well. Um, so, yeah, the, those those geopolitics are definitely going to play out. You know, also keep in mind, though, that the polar region in the north it can be better governed in part because most of the countries in the Arctic littoral um, are very multilateralist in orientation. They spend a lot of money on diplomacy. They're very engaged in in international law um, and, and transparency. Um, and And that's helpful. Uh, the Russians are a notable exception to that, but when you're talking about the Canadians and the Nordics, Japan, you know, you're you're generally talking about countries that are good global citizens, and that's an important thing.
0: All right, Dr. Ian Bremmer, the president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. Thank you very much for joining us here in the Polar geopolitics sure. Podcast. Good talking here. Fantastic talk to you. Thank you.